Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I have to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you doing down here, you shawnee man? <laughs> You're very welcome to the Irish Times football podcast today. The Irish Times second captain's football podcast indeed. The title of today's episode, Everything You Always Wanted to Know About the FBI's High Performance Director, Rude Doctor, But We're Afraid to Ask, starring Ken Early. Hi, Ken. Hi, I you're you? a, I'm good. You're a chief character out there. You're just back in the door from a trip to the FAI's base in Abbottstown. So tell us, what's Rude Doctor all about? Uh, bloody right on. We were out there in Abbottstown, myself, Rude Doctor, Roy Keane, and... Uh, football men all. Football men, and, uh, and a lot of actual football, football boys. Young players. Young players. Young players wearing uh, football gear. Uh, to add to bring a bit of colour to the proceedings because this was the launch of the National Under Seventeen League, Artricity sponsored, of course. And uh, these uh, young football boys are going to be the stars of the football men of the future. We hope. And mm-hmm. uh, that's what Kate said. You know, we hope if we could just get one or two of them. <laughs> He's looking at them. He's not. Uh, he he reckons. You know, it's it's not a case of all of these guys come through. That's not the way sport works. But you know, if just one or two. You know, things could could uh, dr- drastically improve. Um, so Rude Doctor was there, uh, kind of continuing a little bit what some of what he was talking about last week in Stygo with the FAI AGM about the development plan and um, the kind of structures they're putting in place and so on. Uh, so they both did press conferences afterwards, so we were able to get a word with Roy Keane and also with Rude Doctor. Uh, about this and, and various other issues involving your development. We'll have a listen to all that a little bit later on, right after Kennedy's report on sport. So, and I guess um, we should mention, we should start by mentioning the World Cup draw. I mean, it was a couple of days ago at this stage, everybody knows what happened. Um, we've seen the comments of, you know, Martin O'Neill saying, could have been worse, could have been better. It was a real slow burn, wasn't it, the draw itself, even by FIFA standards. Mm, it I mean, was- I turned it on after... I honestly think it was an hour and a half. In. I forgot it was on, Ken. I'll be honest with you. Uh, you were you watching it on RTE? Yeah, watching RTE. They seemed to be about an hour and a half into their coverage. George Hamilton was losing the will to go on. Yeah. It, was, it, was, it was the penultimate draw, so it was a South American draw. And he said, of course, everybody knows who's in this. Uh, this they are, they're all just in the one group here. So yeah. this is just deciding who plays whom in the first game. Oh, and it's Bolivia. Yeah, they're up against Uruguay. Yeah. yeah. Okay, let's hear what Diego Fordon has to say about that. Oh, he does it. The altitude will make this one difficult <laughs> up there in La Paz. Yeah. Uh, and it kind of went on and on. And eventually, it took a while for George even, and I think he, he does a manful job on those draws. It took a, a while for him, even in the European draw, to get super excited. But once Ireland were out there, he started uh, calibrating. Well, did you hear how he reacted to Wales? He was delighted. He was stunned. Wales? <laughs> what are they doing in there? Jesus. You know, it was like he was he was honestly like... Wales, he almost sounded, sounded shocked, like appalled. Mm. It was like, I can't believe that just happened. Did that really happen? Is, is this not some Russian doll trick uh, that that uh, Oliver Bierhoff and Jérôme Valk are playing? Jérôme Valk, by the way, did you see his interaction at the start with the two Russian presenters, Natalia Vodianova? No, I read a bit about Mary Hannigan's column today. I, I, again, I missed the part. I decided not to go all the way back to the start of the broadcast. Well, the thing is that the or, or he didn't show the whole show. 
What? So no. Blair's wasn't the whole show? No, they didn't show the whole thing. They even didn't show all the Seth Blatter's speech. They cut to Blatter and he was there ha- kind of halfway through. Yeah. Um, they There was loads of stuff that they didn't show, which was a little bit disappointing because I sort of wanted to see the uh, Russian... Like, the whole thing is, is basically like halftime entertainment at the Eurovision, except stretched out uh, and... and inflated to super bombastic proportions because that's what FIFA thinks is good. And so the one thing that I did see was this bizarre kind of ballet slash acrobats show. God, what was the song that they were playing? I mean, it wasn't like a, an old traditional Russian song. I think it was just a like a pop song from a few years ago. I can't believe I can't even remember which song it was. But it was just this riot of, of color. You know, it was. It just made no sense at all. It was like, what is this? This is just so far beyond culture of any kind. Did it make as much sense as the jazz band who played uh, songs, apparently, or one song anyway, apparently inspired by football? Really? Yeah. That what was kind of own, songs? Uh, well, I don't know, jazz. Jazz. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to tell when jazz is inspired by football and when it's not. I don't know my jazz well enough. Then, yeah. I mean, not a bad form of music at all. But I, I wouldn't claim to be an expert by any means. So I don't know when one is can legitimately be said one tune to be inspired, inspired by, by the game. Field. But that's what FIFA said, and we got to take FIFA at their word. I mean, I mean, I saw a little bit of footage of Blatter hanging out with uh, Vladimir Putin at this. They were like sitting there, like you know, exactly the way Obama would be he was the visiting dignitary and sitting in this kind of gilt uh, 18th century gilt chair um, in you know this palace in St. Petersburg with with the curiously expressionless Russian president he I mean he's got the smoothest most unlined face I've ever seen it's like literally looks as though his face has not expressed a human emotion in in the last two to three years uh, his hang, hands are kind of hanging down by the side of his body holding something in his hands as well. Um, always had something in his hands. Um, I don't know. It, I, he, he strikes me as... It's a strange kind of a thing to, to see a guy like that. He does, he's not really moving around in the in the very naturalistic manner. I'm not suggesting they've replaced him with some kind of a primitive android, Owen, but he does he does seem to be... Um, there seems to be a certain flattened affect with... Uh, with the Russian president. I could across you when you were talking about the interaction between Valka and the presenters. Sorry about that. Well, I mean, I don't know why they do these types of things. I really just... What happened? Well, basically, Natalia Vodinova, who's, you know, a supermodel, um, she says, Jerome Valka comes out. He's not a he's not a presenter. Why is he doing this? Why, why didn't they just get the presenters to do it? Why, why did they have the Secretary General or whatever of FIFA doing it. Okay, because I suppose Jerome Valk, it's his moment in the sun. Uh, so he kind of swaggers out on the stage. Um, Natalia Vodinova says, you know, it's it's the usual really unbelievably stilted interaction. And she says, oh, Mr. Valk, uh, so how many times should I kiss you? And uh, he says, oh, well, of course, in France, it would be three times. Uh, in Russia, oh, I don't know, but let's try. And he goes, one, two, three. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and then he's kind of like, he's there. And then the, the other, the little Russian TV presenter, the male one, says, oh, you have got a great job. And Jerome Valk says, yes. And then anyway, they get on with the show. You know what I mean? I'm just thinking, why did nobody think about what what was going to happen here? Nobody literally thought about this. But you don't want to overrehearse these things, Ken. You need the moments to be natural. It's, it's that sounds true. natural as hell, Ken. Oh, they probably did it in rehearsal as well. I, you know, probably. I mean, they did it in they did rehearsal. I think it was was it uh, Peter Collins or Brian Kerr mentioned we got France and Holland in rehearsal. Ouch. Uh, they got each other again, but luckily we had escaped into into another group. Escaped into the group. In which whales are the big dog. So you're happy enough with it, even though we've got a potential the, banana skin in Georgia and uh, Serbia has a pretty strong. It's jersey. literally the best group. You could you could barely pick a better group. Well, certainly you could, couldn't pick a better first seed. No, come on, it's it's the best possible outcome. Have for you Ireland. seen our record against Austria over the years? We've won two out of about twenty games against them. Ah, we're dire against Austria. I mean, they're much better than us. You know, I mean, we're, I'm not saying we're going to qualify. I'm just saying this is the best group we could have no, got. No, but are Austria not up there? Uh, maybe. Third or fourth best team in that second pool of players of pool of teams. Uh, you know, 
I don't think Austria are particularly special. Well, Austria have quite a good team at the moment. Certainly one of the best teams Austria have had since the heyday of Tony Polster. Um, you know, and they were too good for us back then as well. And our team then, you could say, was a little better than it is at the moment. Um, so Austria and Serbia will both fancy themselves as being the favourites for the group. Wales won't fancy themselves as being the favourites. They know their position is false. <laughs> they know, they know that they have a chance because they've got probably the best player in the group, and Gareth Bale and uh, Ramsey is one of the best players in the group, and they've got a pretty good team and they're on a, on a bit of a roll. So I mean, I'm sure they'll think they'll finish ahead of Ireland. They, they're quite happy to have Ireland. Everyone is happy to have us in the draw. You know, all the other teams are looking at it going, well, you know, at least out of pot four, we've got one of the better teams. That You know, we've got one of the, the nicer opponents in pot four. Well, Faroe Islands are in our pot. Sure. They might have preferred for some Faroe Islands, though, you know, they, maybe they're on the up and up as well. Mm. Um, Georgia, a banana skin. A banana skin everyone always says that about Georgia. We've, but we've yet to slip on this banana skin, though no, we always beat them. <laughs> they always end up being, you know, bottom of the group or second bottom of the group. You maybe know, it's they, a banana skin that's already... You know, it's kind of, it's been thrown out. It's been thrown into one of those, you know, the parts of it being for banana skins and other, is it biodegradable? Biodegradable. It's, uh, it's been composted. It's been composted completely by the time we get around to playing it. Yeah. Or potentially standing on it. I mean, uh, you know, it, it, the thing about a banana skin is it's supposed to be a surprise. You know what I mean? You, you don't slip on a banana skin that you know is there. <laughs> you would just walk around. And everybody says about Georgia, it's like the curse of Georgia. Everybody says, oh, Georgia, they're not to be dismissed lightly. But of course... You know, all the team has to do is, is really concentrate. I guess we did maybe get a bit lucky against them in, in 2008 when we um, when we got to play them in Mainz. Yeah, out of the most recent game where we needed a piece of genius made in Giedi. Is a banana skin really all that slippy? I, I mean, I remember someone telling me once that the banana skin was, was just invented as a kind of euphemism for something else, which is actually quite slippy. Right. But was too rude to put into <laughs> into a cartoon. So rather than put that into the cartoon, you actually had a banana skin. But everybody knew what it was supposed to stand up, stand in for. But everyone's run with it, you know. You see Super Mario Kart game, one of the great computer games. They have a banana skin. One of the things you can do is leave a little banana skin behind there for somebody else to slip on. I, I, I've never personally slipped on one. No. Nope. Um, I, I doubt most people have, but um, you know, I suppose it's there. Georgia are one of them, but you know, at the same time, everybody knows. And the other team, Moldova. Moldova lost at home to Liechtenstein. In this campaign, they drew the away game, one all. So they're not a very good team. And uh, it is the best possible group we could have got. You can't complain about it. I mean, Martin O'Neill says it could have been could have been um, better, could have been worse. Couldn't have been much better. Uh, he was confident in the way he was speaking, though. As in, uh, confident might be the wrong word, but he, you could tell he was pretty happy with it. He said himself, I wasn't too sure. Once we got placed in those teams, he, he reckons that Georgia, Moldova, Serbia, he wasn't necessarily overjoyed with, but he's pretty happy with the top two seeds. Mm. You could end up with two of the best teams in Europe. Yeah, you could easily. You really don't. It's not what you, end up, you end up with Germany in your group, or even, you know... Holland or Spain or Italy these these are teams who are almost they're almost certainly going to top the group they're taking the automatic qualification and in this instance there isn't anyone in our group who's, who's the outstanding favourite Austria will think they can do it Serbia will think they can do it Wales maybe and Ireland I suppose have a chance you know I mean the, the, it's the World Cup is so hard to qualify for now um, and the playoffs are going to be of a high caliber as well you're not going to get an Estonia I don't think in the playoffs so really it's the top qualification spot that everybody has to be looking for and for once uh, there isn't anyone in there who you know is going to finish ahead of, ahead of us these teams we probably won't qualify for the World Cup look at the odds that the bookies they, they reckon Ireland are 3-1 to one to qualify they reckon we have a 1-4 in four chance of qualification even though it's not it's not a difficult group but it's not a difficult group. Roy Keane was asked about it today. He said, well, I don't I don't think of things as an easy group or in terms of easy group or tough group. It's just, they're all tough groups. And we're saying essentially, sometimes I've looked at it, when I was playing, I've looked at it and said, oh, this is, a, you know, yeah, this group looks good. And then we've got knocked out. And sometimes this is a hard group and we've got through. I mean, the, the 2002 World Cup qualification group is one of the hardest ones we've had. We had Holland and Portugal in that group. But we managed to knock Holland out. Um, that's, you know, uh, an example of it was one of the hardest groups we've had, and it was one of our most successful ones. So, who knows? It's Manchester United, Ken. It's Manchester United. Today. Manchester United are just—it's kind of a full spectrum dominance here of the preseason, and that they're largely because Louis van Gaal has had a lot to say, and they seem to be quite busy on the transfer market. They've signed Sergio Romero, the Argentina goalkeeper, uh, not a top-class goalkeeper in my opinion. Louis van Gaal thinks he is. 
knows him from Alkmaar uh, back in the day. Uh, seems to have a lot of confidence in him. I imagine this is definitely a Louis van Gaal pick. Um, but, you know, it's, he's, he's clearly not as good as David Gea, and there aren't many goalkeepers who are. Um, is he going to be a first-choice goalkeeper? Well, at the moment, Van Hal is saying that he could be. What are his weaknesses, then? He looks like... Uh, I enjoy his expressions during penalty shootouts. I watched him again in, uh, in the Copa America, as in the World Cup, and he he's not a man... He's a bit like Roy Hodgson at the World Cup draw, actually. He's um, not very good at the old poker face. Uh, a lot, lot of smiting, a lot of grimacing, a lot of wry smiles when he doesn't save penalties which perhaps he should, mm. uh, but is he the type of goalkeeper that's going to struggle, particularly with English football, or are you just don't think he's that great full stop? I just don't think he's that good a goalkeeper. He actually had a decent World Cup. I mean, he maybe the final. To be honest, I always thought that guts a goal shouldn't have ended up in the net. And I thought he should have got that. But look, you know, every goalkeeper is occasionally going to let in a goal that maybe they think they could have done better on. But... Yeah, he had an okay World Cup. I mean, he didn't. There, were, there weren't too many. Um, there weren't. There, you know, I think he played well in that tournament. Actually, I'm just. He not... doesn't have the De Gea, and I know De Gea mightn't have had it for the first few months he was at Man United, but he doesn't have the De Gea or the Petr Cech, as far as I can see, dominance. That 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 authority uh, around a box. You just don't think this guy's. Sometimes it can be perception with goalkeepers, but if the defenders share the same perceptions as <laughs> supporters do, mm. it means ultimately it is going to affect the defensive solidity of a side. I think it does. And, and look, and it's a really difficult club. It's a difficult club for a goalkeeper. There's a lot of people there at the game staring at you if you make a mistake. Yeah. It's a difficult one. I mean, how many goalkeepers crumbled there? You know, they, every so often they'd get a good one, Schmeichel van der Sar and now De Gea. And replacing a guy like that, I mean, if they, if he does go, and it's looking almost less and less likely that he will, just the longer he stays there, it's looking so they might uh, be able to keep him for another season. If Personally, if I was Edward Woodward, uh, or certainly if I was Louis van Gaal, I'd say, keep the hair. I don't care about his contract. It doesn't matter about the money. The, the kind of money they're talking about paying us, actually, he's worth more than that. Just for his possible impact on the team this season, even if he leaves for free, he still, I would pay that money, 25, 30 million, I would pay that to have him for one more season because it could, it could have a dramatic effect on the season. And things are going well, who knows what might happen? You know, maybe he signs a new contract, maybe he decides to stay. So I, I think that would be, if I was then, that's what I'd be trying to do. And it looks as though that maybe is what they're going to do. Um, we'll wait and see. But there's a lot been said, anyway, by Van Hal. He did a big Q&A with the media over in the United States. Um, possibly the most controversial thing, he says, is that uh, he says um, he's going to quit football probably in 2017, which is two years away. It's at the end of his current contract. He had talked about maybe extending, um, but he seems to have uh, changed his view on that. Because uh, Mrs. Truce Van Hal wasn't too impressed at the news that he was considering extending. I have promised it to my wife. We have not many years together anymore, says Van Hal somewhat morbidly. <laughs> that is the reason. Uh, he says, I've done everything in my career as a manager. Um, what about extending your stay, Louis? I can't answer. My wife, Truce, is very mad. <clears throat> By which I think he means angry uh, on this, you know, mad in the American sense, as opposed to, you know. He says, I have to admit, I have said to her when I met her and our relationship seemed to be very good that at 55 years old I shall quit. I'm still working and next week I'm 64. Uh, the only wish was the Premier League. Now I'm here. So, do I have to go to Qatar to earn still more money? I don't think so. You have to enjoy also your life and your relationship with your wife. Now, this is what, you know, football men all over the world are listening to this from Louis van Gaal and thinking to themselves, what, is, what planet is this guy on? You know, what kind of a guy sits down, talks to his wife and, you know, comes to a joint decision with her on their future? Certainly, I don't think Alex Ferguson would have approved of this. Well, it's the opposite of Alex Ferguson. Lady Cathy just didn't want him there under under his feet the whole time, under her feet the whole time. Get out Advise from under him my to feet. Go back. Yeah, please don't get out. I mean, Ferguson definitely in his book seemed to um, pour a bit of scorn on David Beckham for allowing his wife to have a say in where he went in his career. Things have worked out so poorly for well, he, there. he gave up his chance. He gave up his chance of being a top player. That was what that was what Ferguson said By about going Beckham. to Real Madrid. It was amazing actually. The more you think about that, Beckham leaves Manchester United, literally never says a single bad thing about them or 
everything he says about Alex Ferguson verges on, you know, worshipful, you know? And what's and his reward after 10 years of assiduous dipl- diplomacy and politeness <laughs> is to just get smacked down again. Oh, this guy let his wife run his run the career, gave up his chance of being a top player. You know, I've wasted enough time talking about this guy. You know what I mean? I just... The one time Beckham came close to saying anything negative about Ferguson, bizarrely was in an interview with Graham Norton last year on TV, where Graham Norton, because he came at it with the angle of, I literally don't know anything about this, David, you know? But I mean, obviously you had a bust up with Alex Ferguson. Oh, he didn't use term bust up because he's not a football <laughs> writer a football or, or sub-editor. But he said, yeah, so you had this argument with, uh, oh, he, kicked, he kicked a boot in your face, you got annoyed, and then you left the club, you know? <laughs> and he's like, Beckham's like, no, he didn't have it. I mean, he didn't have a disagreement. And it's like, well, he, of course it. Graham Norton's, of course, he had a disagreement. You boot face, you yeah. leave. And eventually, Beckham is sort of forced to admit that they didn't see eye to eye yeah. for a period. And Graham was like, okay, so we've cleared that one up. He's probably thinking, why entertainers don't usually speak like this. Why are they being so coy on these disagreements? Yeah, exactly. I mean, in fairness, Beckham is, is one of the top uh, uh, diplomats, diplomats and politicians. You know, he, he knows, uh, he, he's, he doesn't go around alienating people. You know what I mean? He doesn't say anything. Um, nasty about people in public and maybe he may he may even have been genuine when he talked about I mean I'm sure he had a lot of great years mm-hmm. playing for Manchester United and probably once the initial rawness of you know Ferguson abusing him and <laughs> you know trying to bully him in front of everyone had faded out a bit maybe he was able to remember something maybe he was genuine but of course Ferguson always remembered you know the fact that in, for some reason whether by portraying the code of the game and turning to his wife, Victoria, and saying, well, Victoria, what do you think? <laughs> do you have any preferences on what I might do? You know, but by doing that, he essentially sold out the club. I mean, in Ferguson's view, the manager comes first, then the wife. You know? So uh, in, in, in Van Hal's case, he appears to have just got his priorities horribly muddled here. And, you know, I hope, I just hope this doesn't cost Manchester United, is all I can say. But what did Van Hal have to say in this Q&A? A couple of insulting things, actually, about his own players. Um, he sounded, actually, only he said, a little bit like Giovanni Trapattoni. Yeah, I did tweet that yesterday, particularly with the Ashley Young comment, I thought. Mm. Trap used to, every so often, when, when people would point out that our results weren't very good, he would say, well, we have no the creative. We have no the creative. Or, you know, in the same way, they have no the Tribune. Uh, that was uh, Athlone Town, I think. They have no the Tribune. When Trapattoni went there with AC Milan. And they, AC Milan players are looking at each other going, they have another tribune. You know, where is the tribune? They have the tribune, you know, the stand. That's what they call the, Oh, excuse me. That's what they call a stand in Italy. Uh, so, <laughs> so um, we have another creative. We have, we have another famous player. And this is basically what Van Hal is saying about Manchester United, you know? Ed Woodward. The thinking biggest club in the world. Woodward kind of with this rictus smile going, has he not, you know... Is he not satisfied with the 60 million purchase of Van Hilde Maria? Um, he says, uh, we have to look for more creativity. For example, Chelsea have Hazard, William and Oscar. There is a lot of creativity there. <clears throat> you need that because you have to disorganize teams who park the bus. Next year, there might be more teams who are parking the bus. So uh, he says, he says, we can use much more creativity. We don't have a good vision. Ashley Young had a fantastic season, but he is not a Neymar. And we have to compete with that kind of class. <laughs> <laughs> That's extraordinary. I think everybody knows that Ashley Young's not a Neymar, but publicly saying it is uh, seems a bit needless. You, you could have made the overall point without bringing one of your own players into it, especially one of your players who overperformed, if anything, last season. Look, I mean, well, look, Levan uh, Hall did a pretty amazing job, considering Ashley Young ain't no Neymar. No. You know what I'm saying? Barely a professional footballer. Yeah. The way Van uh, Hall is He ain't even a Pedro, no. to be honest. And Pedro is the, is the guy... They're talking about maybe signing now. Um, uh, Manchester United for his twenty-two Don't million pound release clause. Well, first of all, you, you mentioned Di Maria, who they're selling, I and mean, they have Di Maria. They're not necessarily the... selling Di Maria. Well, Van Hal says he wants Di Maria to stay. Well, he he seems to have said, Van Hal has said openly, "I want Di Maria to stay. We need speed, we need creativity. He's got those things, but you know, pff, it's not really up to me." Uh, implying that there's a player to be considered, also the club. You know, we'll wait and see how that goes. But from what he says in public, anyway, as long as he's not lying, he wants Di Maria to stay. Uh, but as whether Di Maria wants to stay is, is another thing. I mean, Paris Saint-Germain, like half their players are behaving as though Di Maria is signing. 
you know, Zlatan is talking about him saying, oh, what a great player, you know, can't wait to play with him. Uh, you know, he's he's really terrific. Um, he brings quality, big quality. He'll make our team even better. We'll receive him with open arms. It just shows how much PSG are willing to get what they want. This is Zlatan talking about a deal that hasn't happened. You know, every year they investigate big players, but also players that fit in the team. There are no limits. The people behind this, they want to become big. It's about details. Uh, Real Madrid, a fantastic team with fantastic players. When they, when they got Gareth Bale, they became better. We will become better with Di Maria. So that's Zlatan. Then you've got David, David Luiz. Uh, who is a former teammate of Di Maria's from Benfica. Uh, I love him. He's my friend. I played with him in Benfica when me and him weighed just 70 kilos. He will he will be fantastic for the team. He also knows how to play on the defensive side. He's an amazing player. Um, sometimes, am I surprised it didn't work out in England? No, it's not about this. Sometimes you can't have luck in one place, but he's still a fantastic player. Um, so, yeah, he's going on and on about, um, about how great Di Maria's going to be. So they seem to be under the impression that... Uh, He's one of the top three wingers in the world, says David Luiz. I played against many top players. He's fast, technical, plays for the team, knows how to play as an individual, how to pass, how to score. So he's better than me. Um, so, yeah, I mean, why would Manchester United want to sell this guy? I suppose because the player that Zlatan and David Luiz are talking about bears no relation to the player who actually was wearing the shirt of Manchester United last season. Although he did do okay in terms of, I think he had 10 assists, which isn't bad, but... He really failed to make any kind of consistent, you know. Imp- I mean, if you if you think back to last season, Angel Angel Di Maria got sent off in the cup match against Arsenal that they lost, and that was actually the turning point of the season. At around the moment when Di Maria got sent off, it looks as though things might be about to go off the rails horribly. And then what they won the next six games in a row, I think he was out of the team, didn't get didn't really get back in, and uh, they looked a lot better without him. So. I think, given the amount of money they spent on him, they, they would have expected a lot more. And if they can get most of it back from PSG, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they were interested. Just a last word on this. For all the strides Man United have made, if they lose Di Maria, it seems like some Man United fans might be happy enough with that. I know some aren't, and some feel that it's up to Van Hal to get more out of him. If they're to lose Di Maria, and particularly if they do lose De Gea, it looks as though now Sergio Ramos won't be leaving Real Madrid. That's certainly what the Madrid are saying today. You could end up having a pretty uh, poor... If Manchester United don't stick to their po- state of policy of not... Or certainly the, the reporter policy of not parting with their goalkeeper unless they get Ramos. If they end up folding on that one, you then lose your most important player from last year. Certainly one of your two most important players in your goalkeeper. You don't get the defender you're looking for. You haven't bought a big-name striker. Just you haven't yet. even mentioned Robin van Persie. Yeah, Robin van Persie gone. Suddenly it doesn't look so great in the transfer market. I mean, van Persie has left without anybody caring. Yeah. You know, it was as though he just completely... He, he did so badly last season that... I mean, Van Hal said about him, look, you know, uh, people said uh, Robin was my favourite. Uh, I think that seemed to obviously annoy Van Hal a little bit, the idea. And maybe, maybe Van Hal felt as though he couldn't afford to let anyone think that he was favouring Van Persie. Because uh, their relationship does seem to have gone sour quite quickly. No, it's a classic teacher teaching their... Kid, in kid, yeah, syndrome, and uh, you know, and Van Persie maybe, Van Persie gave an interview to the Sunday Times, where he uh, talked a little bit about um, speaking to Van Hal on behalf of other players, and it seemed like maybe that didn't uh, really work out. He, I mean, he he didn't say anything really, um, he didn't say anything particularly critical of Van Hal, but he did praise Arsene Wenger and Alex Ferguson to the heavens, and then sort of say. Uh, yeah, and then there was one hell. So uh, he said, uh, maybe it uh, maybe it counted against me um, that we that, that I would I would talk to Van Hal on behalf of other players. He also essentially explained that uh, I was playing over Christmas with a, an inflamed tendon uh, in my ankle, and I just played and played because the team needed me. So I sacrificed myself for the team, and you know the manager was obviously using me a lot. And uh, then obviously I busted my ankle up completely. And it was because I was too tired because I'd given too much, and you know, certain managers maybe don't understand. Ah, Sir Alex, on the other hand, was absolutely brilliant with that kind of thing. Sir Alex just knew; he just knew when you could when you could give more, and when he'd asked you to give enough already, and gave you a little bit of rest. And he would talk. He talked about a Ferguson team talk, typical Ferguson team talk. Um, uh, what a what an amazing player! Uh, what an amazing manager! He'd come in sometimes and say, "Boys, 
Where do I start? It's boring. Imagine me, 72 years old, watching this kind of game. Excite me. Try a pass over 40 meters. Try a dribble. I don't care if it goes wrong. I want to sit on the edge of my chair. Please excite me and make the game quicker, please. He was a genius. So, very um, impressed with, uh, with Alex Ferguson. That's the end of Kennedy's report on sport. Flame hair, flame hair, flame hair, truth, Mr. Ken Early. Mr. Ken Early. Mr. Ken Early. Mr. Ken Early. Every so often I'm on the bus and I suddenly turn around to fight someone. John Hayes, I'm talking about, Aaron. Yeah. John Hayes. Now, I always thought that was ridiculous. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Brendan Rogers. That's where it goes from. Thanks a lot, Pepe. Fair to say, anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Let me show you right now for you give it up. All right, well, time to start learning a little more about Rude Doctor, Ken. But first, if there's anything more to be learned about Roy Keane, uh, he was there at the announcement today of the... So it's an electricity under-17 league. Yeah. That uh, was the, the basis of today's press conference. Yes, because we haven't really had one of those yet. So it's all about the pathway. Uh, this is this is a word that gets used a lot. Essentially, um, to, okay, the idea is that you now have a competition in which the best young players in the country can be playing against each other regularly. Uh, the idea being that, you know, that will be good for all of them and it's kind of a good place where the talent can... Can I kind of compete against yeah, and it measure itself logical, against yeah. the rest of the talent, and uh, part you know a part of the uh, redevelopment of Irish football development, which is underway at the moment. You're looking back a fair few years when I was playing under 16 or 17. I was very lucky. I played with a really good team uh, in a good league, uh, and obviously was involved in the national team underage. I think what we're seeing here certainly, I think the word that's been used today by by Rude and everybody else is that it's a stepping stone. But the players still have to find a way to get through it would it be onto the 19s and then playing League of Ireland, of course, getting across to England. Um, and whatever you look at the, the, the new format, I certainly always benefited. Again, as I said, I, I look back at my own career, even at Rockmont, I always felt I benefited when I played with better players and against better players, even as I got older, even when I went to England and then even from Forest to United. So you're just hoping that these players will no doubt improve by playing with better players and against better players. Um, and they can find their way through to it. But to try and compare it to 20-odd years ago, whatever, uh, I suppose it's, it's a difficult one to answer. Do you remember what age you were when you first started caring about winning matches that you were playing? No, but again, obviously, Rude makes the point there. And it is a balancing act. I know he mentioned it more for the coaches than the players. Um, I don't know anybody who, who doesn't like to win. Um, and to, again, in fairness, I think he was making a point to the coaches about don't be getting bogged down by results every week. It is about helping the players and making sure they progress. When did I first start thinking it was about winning? Truthfully, probably about six or seven. <laughs> I did. I don't. I, I don't ever remember going into a game of football as a young kid, even playing in the streets, thinking, "Well, it's not the end of the world if we lose." You know, you, I think your mindset has to be. I don't, again, I don't know anybody who likes losing. But I, I think Rude again was making to the point more so to the coaches. But if you ask any of the players here today, as soon as they left that room, they'll obviously be playing to win. Of course they will. But from the coaches' point of view, it's trying to look at the bigger picture and see which players are progressing and who are learning and who will be better in the next year or two from it. But from my own point of view, as I said, I, I went to Rockmont when I was eight, nine. And again we were, we were there to win definitely even at that young age whether that's right or wrong I don't know for such a young age um, but yeah it is, it is nice to win One of the things that you I mean say if you read about guys like um, Luis Suarez or Carlos Tevez or Aguero these kind of you know, like top players in the world now they actually seem to have played really really competitive football when they were kids I mean playing for money or really playing quite you know violent very competitive Football where the act is actually all about winning. I mean, no, but as I said, I think to be fair, okay, don't be getting distracted. But I think Rue's making the point more so to the coaches today. I, I, he made that clear. Yeah, he, yeah. He, he was talking about the coaches. He, I don't think he was saying to the players, listen, as I said, if you speak to any of the players here, I don't think they'll be getting mixed up with any messages. Yeah, from a young age, you are taught, you know, 
it is about certainly going out and trying to win the game. Obviously, it's impossible to win every game. But the players you've mentioned, whether it be the, the Barcelonas or the, the Man United, that's in, that's in, in their DNA is to try and win every game of football. But Rude was making to the point more so, I think, for the, for the coaches to try and look at the big picture and realise that they're trying to help the players progress. And if some weeks you don't win, which you obviously you can't win every week, just see what, how the players are progressing and try and see that from it. I, I don't think, don't get confused with the, I don't think the message Rude was given today. Something that Rude talked about since last week, uh, DHM was, was uh, trying to recreate the environment of the street where, you know, uh, kids can kind of uh, discover things for themselves. You know what I mean? Oftentimes now maybe uh, everything happens with a coach there and it's a bit more like a kind of school environment than a, than a kind of... Uh, no, good point. No, very good point. You, you do always try and create that, really, because everyone, even when you played in the street, going back to 10, 11 years of age, you were playing like you were 14 or 15. You were, you know, obviously... The, Playing on the on the road for starters, um, yeah, you try and get that into your players. But of course, the higher level you go up, there's, there's different there's different pressures. You know, you're when you're young, you playing in the street. It's easier said than done because that that is the dream scenario. But of course, your livelihood wasn't dependent on it, and there wasn't fifty thousand people shouting at you when you're playing street football. But yeah, if you can get into that, if players can have that mindset when they're playing a top level football like they played in the street, and that was generally to win. And to try things and not be afraid to make mistakes. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But it's uh, it's easier said than done because I said the higher the higher level you go up, there's more pressure at stake, and there's, you're you're expected to win. Whereas on the street, if you lost, you you sit at home and had your dinner, and nobody said anything. You know, there's a there's a slight difference. But I know the point you're trying to make because that's that's what I I, I still remember, and, and even that's what I would try and get across to my own players. Yeah. And remember, Rude also mentioned the word about enjoyment for, for these young boys. As I said, it might be slightly different when they get a bit older, unfortunately, because as I said, there's contract, you know, the contract situations, there's the supporters watching them, there's the media involved when you're, you're a bit younger. You, try, you do generally ignore all that stuff and, and, and enjoyment. These young kids here today, and it's great to see them because, you, you know, they, they look young, they look hungry, and, and, and it's something new for them. And they do have to enjoy this new league. I think it's a great idea and hopefully they'll enjoy it. And again, it's just not just for the players, of course, it's for the coaches, uh, referees, whatever. And, and hopefully everybody will get right behind it. Because some of these kids, you know, you know, we're hoping, the plan is that hopefully they'll be involved in international football over the next few years. They're 17 years, 17 years of age. You know, again, when I, again, I, I, it's, it's well documented, I didn't get across to England until 19. So hopefully, again, the lads can use this as a stepping stone. And, uh, and if everyone gets behind it, and hopefully we can see some of these kids over the next few years playing international senior level, you know, why not? Uh, it sounds like something Roy is quite passionate about, judging by those interactions, Ken. Um, and he seems to, I, funny, he seems to agree with a lot of what you were saying there in terms of it not being, you know, it, it being easy to say that it's not just about winning, uh, but he himself was six years of age when he first <laughs> decided that he had to it's win. Completely about winning. But the, the point, uh, and this is one, something, and as you, you could hear Keane saying it, and it's something Rude Doctor was saying repeatedly, is that this is, uh, this is aimed at coaches. So the coaches have to be the ones who are capable of seeing the bigger picture. They can't be in the, in, in the position of doing things to win the league. They have to, their job is to develop their players, not to win the league. Mm. The players maybe their job is to win the league. Well, actually, what their what their real goal should be is to develop as footballers to become better footballers. But if they, you know, if they express themselves, if they if they're kind of like a Keane or a Luis Suarez or one of these type of guys who just wants to win, like who gets who who becomes you know sad and angry if they don't win. That's not that's not a bad thing at all. At all no. It's bad if the coach becomes sad and angry. And starts punishing players and you know sort of picking the big lads and all or if that he just picks, becomes withdrawn, yeah, withdrawn from his the squad. coach. The coach just won't talk to anyone. You know, it's just oh, better not talk to him for the next three days. You know what I mean? He's dealing with the with the defeat, or they've missed out on the league by a point. No, that's not the coach needs to be the bigger man. The coach needs to be able to keep a sense of perspective. Uh, but it's okay for the players to want to win. In fact, we want to encourage that. We want players who want to win. Owen. that's the last thing we want to take away that desire to win, which. According to Rude Doctor, is really one of the only cardinal virtues of Irish footballers. Well, let's have a listen to the FAI's high performance director. 
The Under-17 League is very important. As I said, it bridges the gap between school football and the Under-19 Electricity uh, League. And um, so young players who have the opportunity to go to England, you know, they have to take, really, they have to think seriously, what is the best opportunity for me to play? Because at, at a young age, you need playing time. You need matches. So, you know, you could be sitting on the bench in England or have a quality league in, in Ireland. Prepare yourself, get more matured and make the step, you know, at the late rates, which have we seen, you know, with, with players in the past. So uh, it, it, I would say it's, uh, it broadens now the, the opportunities of young players, the possibilities to go into professional football. Do you think that um, we always talk about England here? I mean, it's, why do we always talk about England? Uh, I mean, if, if you look at, for instance, young Polish players, they end up going to play in leagues all over Europe. And does Irish football have a problem with its fixation on England? Well, naturally, you know, the language makes it more uh, comfortable, convenient to stay there, to go there. But we have now Jack Byrne, who moved to Cambuur in Holland. And that's, I would say, that's a great move for him. Uh, that's a different style of play, and he will definitely have opportunities to develop himself. So, yes, I agree with you. You know, you should broaden your, your view and say, okay, what type of player, uh, of player am I? What is the best league for me to develop? So not only focus on just on just on England. I mean, England is the worst league really to, to develop. I mean, it's the richest league, so it's it's almost impossible really to get through. I mean, it, we, it's it's something that we completely need to change in this country. It is very difficult to come through. Absolutely. Yeah. Do, do you think that it's necessarily a negative thing for football in Ireland that uh, you know kids in Ireland often play different sports? I mean, it seems that you know, there's some people who would suggest that actually. Um, to play a lot of different sports and not to specialise at too early an age is actually good for, for development. Yeah, to a certain age, yes, very good. But, you know, it depends on the level of, 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 let's say, of the individual player. You have to make a choice. But at a certain level, you have to say, OK, I'm going to focus on this sport or on this sport, which I'm good at. You know, maybe there's the... Uh, could, be, could be 12, could be 13, could be 14. But once you're at the elite level, you know, you can't, you can't go on playing multiple sports. I'm always looking at the bigger picture of player development. So the question would always be, what is good for the player? So not for, that's for the adults, but what is good for the player? And if that is, is the starting issue, you know, you would always agree. And philosophy is important, game format is important, elite competition structures are important, coach uh, education is important. Those are the main pillars, the main pillars in in football, and it's not, you can't change it overnight. That, that is impossible. Again, it needs, it needs a plan, it needs consistency, it needs continuity. And I've seen that, I've, I was very lucky, you know, to, uh, to work in the Dutch FA back in the 80s with Venus Mikkels, Bert van Lingen, and in that time, the, the, let's say, the Dutch philosophy was created. And I've seen that, uh, later on I've saw that what happened in Germany, I've saw that in Belgium, and it all, you know, is based on, on, on very, I wouldn't say simple pillars, but, you know, uh, on consistency, continuity, and have a plan which is based upon their, their uh, structures in their country without copying it. You mentioned the word consistency several times. Why is consistency you know, across the board throughout the country so important? Because that's something of development. You can, you can compare it with, you know, if you go to school, you know, that's consistency as well. So, because every age group... Um, demands several requirements. So a young kid of six is different of eight, of ten, you know, from a social, from a psychological, from a physical point of view. And you have to understand these requirements and these demands in order to develop. And that is consistency. So it's not about winning games, because winning games is for players. Coaches, if you work, if you work with children, you are a teacher. Period. You're an educator. And an educator means brings different tasks to you. And of course, we all want to win the games, but it's more about the players. So how can you help the players win those games? But you're not, you're not only, you shouldn't be focused on only winning games because, you know, if you have 16 players in your squad, as a teacher, as an educator, you have the responsibility to develop all your players in the squad. Not only on the football, but also from the different 
the other angles I just mentioned. So it's it's a holistic approach, and, it, and that needs consistency. And also, it needs it requires skills that you understand what it is to deal with young children. And then again, excuse me, then again to work with elite players. That's a different side. One thing that people talk about when they come to work in Ireland is um, they sometimes end up puzzled uh, as to how quite a small country can have such a fragmented um, sort of football politics. I mean, the, the contrast would be, say, with Germany, a country of 80 million people, and when the DFB decided that uh, all the clubs would have to introduce the same kind of academies, they just said it and the clubs all had to do it. Mm -hmm. That's not really the case in Ireland. I mean, have you found... Have you found it trying to, I mean, it's one thing to have the plan, to have the ideas, mm -hmm. but in terms of the acceptance or the implementation, how have you found dealing with the survivorish uh, football structures? Well, the FEI is the governing body for football, and they are responsible also for developing football. So that's why I'm very happy with the fact that the 10 recommendations of the Player Development Plan um, is now FEI policy. So that is responsibility for, for, the, board, for, uh, for the FEI. But with leagues such as, say, the, the DDSL or whatever, have you found mm -hmm. that they're open and receptive to the kind of reforms that you're talking about? Well, that's also a process. But uh, we have, uh, the last six months, you know, we have so had so many consultation meetings with, uh, with, the, with the leagues and the clubs, and I feel there's a huge appetite for change, huge appetite for, for learning. So that's a process as well. It's also a long term. You can't change that overnight. That's a structure, you have to accept that, you have to deal with that, but at the same time, you have to understand, okay, we are the FEI and we have to, you know, to, to show leadership and say, this is what we're going to do. That's why the 10 recommendations are here. This is the way forward. We think, you know, how to, to go forward in football, to, how to develop football in Ireland. Do you believe in uh, national characteristics in football? Uh, that's a difficult question. That's a difficult question. And what, do you, what exactly do you mean? Well, I mean Give me an example. I mean, it seems, it seems that uh, maybe it's less the case now because people watch a lot of television, but uh, it seems as though, for instance, Holland played a particular type of game. You know, they played a particular type of passing game. And in Ireland, historically, we've played a different type of game. I mean, maybe because it's windy here, I don't know. I mean, what do you think? Do you, do you think that there is like a... Is there some, when, you, when you come to Ireland look at our football culture, is there something that's like, well, they're actually quite good at this and maybe not so good at this? Are there aspects of it that you kind of analyze in that way? Mm -hmm. Well, in, in Holland, if you say characteristics in Holland, it is, it is possession. That is very important. There is more or less a common philosophy the same system, you know, 43, but, but loads, loads of variations, by the way. So that is their, probably their identity. And Ireland also has an identity. You know, coming from, from, from Holland and, and having played as a manager, underage manager against Ireland was always difficult because, you know, you would know that Yaris would have the never give, never give up mentality, which is just, just brilliant. Always, you know, hard to beat. That's something we have to be proud on. At the same time, we have to develop the game. We have to look you have to look at the top. So what is what is the level at the top and what does it mean for development and rates? That is the way forward. So the top possession game is very important. You have to you have to be able, you know, to be skillful with the ball. You have to play you have to be able to play out from the back. You have to uh, to be able to play various systems. So then it comes down to translation to player development. What does it mean for young players six, seven, eight, nine and ten? How do we how do we develop those players to the top? or to their top. That could be grassroots, but also could be elite. So characteristics, football is, is, is the global game, and every country brings its own. But what I see, you know, it's a lot of similarities in, in characteristics. And of course, countries are different. That makes it probably interesting. Have you um, paid any attention to the rugby team here since in, the, in your time that you've been here? Not in particular, no. Uh, it's, it, I mean, it's just interesting because the um, rugby team used to be very bad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I heard the stories, yes. And it proved quite quickly in a short space of time. And now, um, maybe maybe in the sort of 80s and 90s, there was also that idea, oh, this is, you know, never give up type mm -hmm. of team. That was the only thing they mm -hmm. had. Uh, but now it's a very tactically uh, flexible, tactically intelligent team. Mm -hmm. Uh, it seems to have made a great deal of progress in, in a short space of time. I mean, I don't know if, 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 if 
say how much was attention, but is there is there anything is there anything about the way that they've achieved that that maybe football can can take or take yeah, difficult to say, hard to say because rugby is a totally different sport, different environment, different different competitors. So we are here, you know, in a very competitive uh, uh, environment in football at a high level. So again, you have to look at, you know, our own situation of football and from and start from there on. But as I said before, looking at the, the elite phases. In the 19, they qualified for the, the last couple of years always for the elite phases, as well as the 17s. So at that level, I can see we are, we are able to compete with those teams. But now we have to make, you know, the next step and to come, let's say, to the finals. And, and that comes down, I would say, to development again. Yeah, from longer cultural um, differences. Maybe. I mean, for instance, in, in Holland, it's said. I mean, you would know better than me, but it said that, uh, for instance, players will argue all the time over tactics. There's a kind of a culture of discussing things. You can kind of argue. It doesn't mean that you're necessarily enemies as a result of that. But you know, it's kind of a thing. Because I don't really think people in Ireland do that. I mean, if you argue, it's, it sort of means that you're now enemies, and uh, mm -hmm. it's not. Do you find you argue more or less now since you've come to Ireland? Or? <laughs> no, no, it's not arguing. It's, it's about, you know, asking questions. And young players should be encouraged to ask questions. And not to be against the coach, but just, you know, to encourage and to enlarge their awareness. And that's why the coach, coaching, that's, that's an important for coach education, a coach should learn to ask questions and the proper questions. Because that helps young players, you know, to to enlarge their awareness on the pitch, and that is, I would say, that that's a key point in development, because ultimately it is it is their development, and the coach, also at the highest level, is a facilitator. You can't say, okay, do like me. No, we're all different. We're all different characters with different types, different skills, and I have to. To, to make sure that you develop and I have to understand you. So what kind of character are you? How do you learn? So how do I address myself to you, to you and to, to the other players? So that's different skills for coaching and, and that's why you need the commitment and the involvement of players. Ah, you seem to connect quite well with Rude there, Ken, given the, uh, the, the oftentimes difficult environment of a press conference. You seem to enjoy your questions. Well, uh, you know, uh, I think I was on the cusp there getting a well done, Jeff. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, yeah, it was, it was, it was, I suppose, interesting to get to talk to him because he didn't, I haven't really got too many opportunities to do that since he's been here. No, he seems to be a guy who talks a certain amount of sense. Yeah, I mean, he definitely, can, definitely talks a good game, you know. Um, he's uh, a little bit Arsene Wengerish, I'd say, in his, in his uh, demeanor, you know. Just puts on his little glasses to, uh, to read stuff, but then takes them off afterwards, mm. you know. Um, what do you think of his ideas? Well, there, there are a few different uh, things mentioned there, but you talked about the consistency and uh, constantly talking about, he compared it to school and talks about, I like this idea, he talks about coaches being teachers. Mm. I'm not sure if all coaches see themselves that way. Some of them certainly do, but I think a lot of them want to win games of football as opposed to particularly having the that strand within some people who just feel like they their their strength is in teaching young people something about football. Yeah, and I mean it's an interesting it's an interesting comparison, and it is the way that that it's. I I think I would agree with them. That that's the way football coaches should be. It's kind of ironic that teachers themselves, you know, there's increasingly more more recent times a kind of a move to to put them competing in league tables in the way the coaches used to be, <laughs> so that they're suddenly like um, trying to game the system sort of in the same way for for their personal gain. I mean, you know, the 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 problem is that like a coach, I mean every everyone everyone who's in any kind of a job to some extent is looking for is look, is looking to be recognised as having done a good job. It's a very natural thing to to want you know this sort of recognition. How do you recognise how do you recognise that the the true yardstick of that for you know a football coach should be have you you know other you know the good players who have kind of who you've coached and maybe helped to become better you know i mean i'm not saying everyone's going to get to coach like a robbie Keane or whatever like this you know but that should be really that that's that should be the reward that should be kind of what you get the respect for but i mean how do you even how, how do you even establish that it's a kind of a difficult thing to measure whereas if you win the league well 
then you then you know you're you're like the Alex Ferguson of of the you know whatever little level you're you're playing at. It also varies, I'm sure, club to club. Where some clubs you might take a team from under twelves all the way under whatever it is all the way up, and you're coaching that same player, those same group of players. In other leagues, in other sports, certainly it can be more the case that there's an under sixteen manager, and you then you pass the through group. him. Yeah, you might just go through pass through him for a year, and in that case, it's hard to necessarily lay claim to having a big influence on Robbie Keane. Although you can do it. I mean, teachers do it in schools all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Don't they? I mean, you know, people oftentimes uh, will find that out of all the really boring teachers they have who they don't like, there's one who somehow manages to kind of connect with them about something or get them interested in something. Um, You know, I don't know. I guess maybe maybe it is the same with coaches. It's a bit different. A teacher, I suppose, probably spends a bit more time um, maybe you've got a bit more time and maybe you've got a bit more time to sort of talk and, you know. Oh, there are definitely coaches you like connect this. with some more than you know? others, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. If you, uh, maybe, uh, God, on, we could, you development, could talk about it all day. We could, Ken, but we have to wrap things up and tell people about all the good stuff in our first podcast of the week. Leo Cullen's impending appointment as Lencer head coach, the reacquired machismo of the Galway hurlers. And a final bit of Chris Froome chat for the summer, but we didn't talk about, Ken, was the much to your chagrin, was the Hulk Hogan scandal. Oh. Big news, if people haven't heard, that Hulk Hogan, he's just been expunged. He doesn't exist anymore, despite uh, the many, many years of great service that he's given to the world of WWE. They break off ties with Hulk Hogan after a racist rant about daughter and black men, it says here on Slate. Uh, WWE has ended its more than three-decade-long relationship with Terry Bollea, is Hulk Hogan's real name. Uh, so, yeah, he's in... Uh, there's a sex tape that he is apparently trying to keep quiet or has been trying to keep quiet, but some of the transcript has emerged in which he talks about not wanting his, I think it's his daughter, to get involved uh, romantically with a black man and starts using the N-word uh, quite aggressively and various other issues surrounding that. So he's sort of admitted to this thing happening and apologising for it, but he's gone. Well, poor old Hulk Hogan isn't doing a very good job of defending himself, Owen. Um, this particular battle that he's involved in uh, being unscripted and having no <laughs> no preordained outcome. Uh, he seems to be floundering a little bit. And, uh, you know, trying to defend himself on Twitter, um, he's, he's hit upon one strategy in particular. Well, he, there's a couple of strategies. I mean, one, one was uh, he retweeted uh, Wolf's Head Online. Uh, the logo of that, the, the little avatar of that particular Twitter is a literally a wolf's head on an American flag, right? So, I mean, I'm already, I'm kind of thinking, I'm not sure if I want to retweet this without even reading what it says, right? Wolf's head on an American flag. I'm really not sure. There's a couple of alarm bells going off here. I don't know. I don't know, Owen. But he, they say, biracial President Obama uses N-word is applauded and keeps his job. At Hulk Hogan uses N-word is vilified and loses his job. Yeah, the phrase context is everything yeah. is important in this one. Yeah, it really is. I mean, Obama did use the N-word in uh, the podcast interview with Mark Maron, uh, where he said, you know, we're talking about um, sort of uh, growing beyond racism as a society. It's not just about uh, being too polite to say the N-word, except he used the actual N-word. Why am I using this N-word thing? I feel like I'm caught in this N-word vortex here. Um, but anyway, that's one, one plank of his defense is to try and make a reasoned argument. So not a good, not a good reasoned argument at all from Hulk Hogan via Wolf's Head Online. But uh, the other uh, major strategy that he has is retweeting uh, pictures of support sent to him by supporters who say... Hi, uh, Hulk. This is me and my brother. We know you're not racist. Uh, we love you. Can we get an RT? We are lifelong Hulkamaniacs. The thing is that almost all the pictures that he's chosen to retweet uh, are actually those of Premier League footballers. <laughs> For instance, here's a picture of Kolo Toure. I am Ivorian and I love you, brother. You're not a racist. You are the best. Don't let the media get to you. Says, you know, someone who obviously isn't Kolo Toure, but tweets that everybody else knows. So it's, these things have gone Massively viral. Hulk doesn't know. Here's Andre Arshavin. Uh, Andre Arshavin wearing a wig. Me and my brother Andre, a lifelong Hulkamaniacs. Can we get an RT bro? Jack Wilshire and Danny Welbeck. This is me and my mate. We know you're not racist. Ignore the press and haters. We love you, brother. Uh, Rio Ferdinand is standing there with some guy who says, Everybody says stuff from time to time. Don't forget, me and my dad will always have your back, brother. Uh, say Rio. Uh, you know, and, and Hulk Hogan actually is replying to some of these guys, you know, saying, th- you know, thanks a million, like much love. Uh, this is amazing. So it's just not really going well for him at all. 
It's going really... There's Effie Ambrose. Effie Ambrose sitting in a car probably outside Celtic Park in his Celtic top. Uh, I know you're not racist, Silk. You're the best ever. <laughs> that's been retweeted. Oh, it's been retweeted. Martin Keown and Matthew Flamini. He's retweeted that. He's, the, the most recent one is Lukaku. Lukaku's standing there with someone. This is me and my mate. We know you're not racist and we support you, Hulk. So I don't know if is, is someone, should I tell him, Owen, or, or will you? I think, I think we'll leave Hulk Hogan to his own ignorance for the time being. You already listened to the show, which is good. Why not help us out a little more by rating and commenting about the podcast on iTunes? They, they seem to like that kind of thing, the good people in charge there at uh, iTunes. So do that for us. And thanks very much for listening to this one. We will talk to you soon. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, too. Take care. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys.